Let's pick back up in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Here we're going to get a bit of a flashback as, as Mark breaks away from the main action of the story and he uh, fills us in with what happened to John the Baptist and how he was ultimately put to death by Herod. So look with me in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. I'll read this for us and then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and asked her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she, the, the daughter, came immediately with haste to the king and asked him, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Father, we pray that you would give us grace as we consider your word. We pray that you would illuminate it in our hearts and in our minds. Give us your spirit to guide us in all truth so that we might live for Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, what comes to mind when you, you think of conscience? What comes to mind when you, you hear that word and you think about your conscience? Maybe you think of, of Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket to always let your conscience be your guide. Your conscience guiding you. We, we, we talk about that, always listen to your heart, listen to your gut. But is that the best advice? You know, there's something missing in that equation and in that picture. Our conscience is a, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a God-given part of our inner being, and it does guide us. Uh, John Calvin, he, he spoke of this divine sense that God puts into every person. This, is, uh, this divine sense is, is part of, of our conscience. But our consciences can become distorted. 
They can become seared. Uh, We can flat out ignore our consciences completely. And that's why primarily what we need is the Word of God to guide us, even our consciences. Luther um, maybe most famously puts it when he is on trial and he's asked to recant of everything that he's been doing as he's been working to, to reform the church and its errors. He's asked to recant of his works. And as he's pondering this, he comes to this resolution and he says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Do you hear that connection that Luther's making between the conscience and the word of God? He says, my, my conscience is captive to the word of God. It's neither safe nor right to go against one's conscience, especially when it is so in tuned to God's word. You see, this is what happens to Herod in our passage. He both ignores God's word, he, ignore, he ignores God's prophet, John the Baptist, and he ultimately ignores his conscience that is working and trying to pull him back to the truth. And in the end, we see that Herod's conscience is seared. And as we'll see later uh, in, in the story of, of Jesus, at the end, he appears before this Herod again, but Herod has nothing to say. His conscience is seared. And he approves and he, he continues, uh, Jesus continues on his trial leading to his crucifixion. So it's never safe nor right to ignore your conscience. It's never a good thing to delay any decision, any impulse we have to obey Christ. This is what we see. If your conscience is, is feeling pricked, if you have that feeling in, in your heart, we, we must take those feelings to the Word of God and get those things sorted out. This is what Mark's, uh, Mark is telling us here in the story. This is his lesson. It's a, it's a brilliant bit of, of narrative style here. So remember the context. Jesus had just sent his disciples out in the previous passage. He sent them out on mission. And then in verse 30, it says that the apostles returned to Jesus, and they told him everything that they had done on their mission. So in verse 30, we get back to the the main story. But right here, Mark, he takes a break from the action. If if this was a movie, it would have had a fadeaway as Jesus' disciples were walking off to their mission, and it would have shifted, it would have cut scenes over to Herod sitting in his castle. This is where we pick up with the story, where he gets a message about Jesus, and his conscience is pricked, and he has some guilt as he remembers what he had done in the past. This is his crisis moment. What is he going to do? How is he going to respond to Jesus' teaching? And the question posed to all of us is, how do we respond to God's teaching? Not just in a sermon, but whenever uh, we, we feel that pull through a sermon, through a song, through our own Bible reading, through having a conversation with a friend or with a family member. Something, anything that God is using to, to prick our conscience, how will we respond to that? 
So in order to ask those questions and to think about that, I want to consider three things that will help us make sense of this passage. First, I want to consider the crisis moment in Herod's life. What made this such a significant moment? The crisis moment. Second, I want to consider how we are to respond to those crisis moments when decisions need to be made. And third, how will we have the strength, how are we empowered to respond rightly in those moments? How can we be sure that we'll make the right decision? So the crisis moment, second, how we respond in those moments, and third, the grace that empowers us to respond rightly. Let's look at those three things. And first is this crisis moment. Herod receives word of Jesus' ministry. It says in verse 14 that King Herod heard of it. Well, what's the it? Well, it's everything that has come before. Everything in, that, in the Gospel of Mark that we've read already. All of Jesus' ministry, his message to repent and believe in the Gospel, his message that the kingdom of God is at hand. All his miracles, all his casting out of demons, all the healings that he's done. And then especially as he's now going on mission and sending his disciples out, word of this missionary work has, has come now to Herod. But people don't know exactly who this Jesus is. They know his name, but they don't know his exact identity. And there's some leading theories. Some people think it's Elijah who's come back. Other people think it's one of the prophets or it's the prophet that Moses uh, promised all the way back in Deuteronomy. Others think that it's John the Baptist come back from the dead. And Herod, his guilty conscience, his gut is telling him, no, it is John. John is back, verse 16, it is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised. And then starting in verse 17 now, we get a flashback to the events that led up to John's beheading. This is Herod's crisis moment and how he responded to it. So verses 17 and onward, they give us this backstory of, of all that, uh, everything, how this happened. Uh, it was Herod, we learn, who arrested John for the sake of Herodias, who was his brother's wife, but is now married to Herod. So a lot going on, a very intricate web of, of things happening here. But this Herod, this is not the same Herod the Great that was alive at Jesus' birth. Now, he passed away soon after that, but this is Herod's son, Herod Antipas. And after Herod the Great died, he divided his kingdom among three of his sons. There's Archelaus. He received the region of Judea, which includes Bethlehem. And that's why in Matthew's gospel, it says uh, that uh, they didn't go back to Bethlehem right away, but they went to Nazareth. Why did they do that? Because Nazareth was outside of Archelaus' territory. And he was trying to fulfill his father's uh, uh, campaign of, of, of killing all the newborn males in the region. So Joseph and Mary went to Nazareth, where Archelaus' brother, Herod Antipas, was ruling. So this is the region of, of Antipas. There's the third son, Philip. He was another son. He had the region across the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. All right, so those are the three uh, big regions there, okay? And the, the geography portion of the sermon is now done. All right, but those are the three regions. But we learn that Philip had a wife, Herodias, 
But now Herodias was married to, to Herod, Herod Antipas. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, that's kind of odd that their names are so similar. What's going on with that? And the reason they're so similar is because Herodias is actually the granddaughter of Herod the Great from another son of Herod the Great, which means that she's actually the niece of both Herod Antipas and her former husband, Philip. And now she's married the ex-wife of Philip, who is still living at this time, is married to Herod Antipas. So both a niece and an ex-husband. Certainly then, an unlawful marriage to say the least. And John the Baptist is speaking out against this unlawful marriage. He's speaking out against it. Why is he doing that? Because his conscience is captive to the Word of God. So he must say something against it. And we're told that Herodias hated John for denouncing their marriage. It was, it was an open secret. It was, not only was it unlawful and sinful, but it was politically foolish in the region of Galilee where, where everybody there would have known and, and been so, uh, uh, it would have been uh, such a scandal for, for them to have this unlawful marriage. And John was the one who was, who was speaking out on behalf of the people, as it were, saying what is right in front of them. This, this is a horrible thing. It's an ungodly thing. It's an unlawful thing. Herodias hated John for that. But notice Herod's response. He arrests John to try to placate his wife. He imprisons John, but he does not put him to death partly out of fear of revolt by the people, but notice what it says in verse 20. It says that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and, and it says that he kept him safe, and when he heard him. So not only is, is John safe in prison here, but Herod is, is fre uh, frequently uh, going to hear and listen to John. And it says that he's greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. He's perplexed. Literally, it means to be pulled in two different directions. On the one hand, he knew John was a disaster to his political empire. But on the other hand, there's something in his conscience. There's something in his heart telling him, testifying to him that what John says is true, that this really was a righteous man, that he really enjoyed John's teaching, that he knew this was right and he should have listened to him. So right here then, what we need to see right here is there's a major crisis moment coming, and we'll get to that, but every step of the way, there's all these other small decisions that Herod could be making. Every time he came to speak with John was another decision and another decision to turn from his foolishness, to turn from his sin, and to turn to God. But he ignored it every step of the way. And the result was that when this big crisis moment came, which we'll get to in verse 21, Herod was all the more weaker and he was unable to respond correctly. And there's a lesson for us in that. You know, no one here, none of us here, no one who has fallen into to a grievous kind of sin, no one ever wakes up and makes a decision that, you know, today I'm going to do something that will completely destroy my career 
and ruin my family and ostracize me from my community. Nobody wakes up and makes that decision. But it's the, it's the culmination of several small decisions along the way. Decisions where we ignore our conscience and don't turn from them in those moments. In those everyday moments, Herod, he should have responded to John's message with repentance and faith. He was being torn in these two directions. He, he should have gone in that direction and responded to John, but ultimately he didn't. That led him then to this huge moment of crisis. How should he have responded then to this moment of crisis? How should we respond in these moments? That's the second thing we need to see. And if we are not diligent to listen to God's word and obey him, that only provides greater opportunities for sin. And that's what happens to Herod. In verse 21, we see that there is such an opportunity. This opportunity came of this, this grievous sin. So he gets uh, to this, this moment here. He has a birthday party. Uh, Herod was a great politician, so he threw good parties. And he invited everybody in, in the area uh, to come and celebrate with him. He invited the nobles. Those would be the, the high-ranking political uh, leaders in Galilee. He invited the military commanders, the officers of the army, to come as well. And then on, he says that he invited the leading men, other influential, just generally wealthy, influential Galilean uh, people. And this party, it quickly devolved into, into debauchery. And that was the opportunity that came up for Herodias to finally get her revenge against, Herod, uh, against uh, John the Baptist. And she does that through this, this unnamed daughter. This, this daughter, again, um, such a horrible family dynamic, but she's dancing here. It would have been a lewd dance, and it, it uh, pleased, it says, it pleased the, the men there at the party. And Herod, he was not one to let an opportunity to, to show off. Uh, he was not going to let that go by. He wanted to show off his, his pretend authority, so he offers this gift uh, to, to get the guys going. This was not something that he even had authority to, to offer. There's a lot of irony in this passage. King Herod was really no king. He was a vassal of, of the Roman Empire. And when he offers up to half his kingdom, that's not something that he even had the authority to offer. But he wanted to show off. He wanted to, to give the guys a good time. But the daughter, she was ready. She goes and tells her mom, Herodias, and without skipping a beat, this was their moment. Go and, go and tell him that I want John the Baptist, I want his head. And she dutifully goes and she asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. The color that must have run out of Herod's face as he realizes what a mistake he had just made. But because of his oaths, because he took this vow, this binding vow in front of his guests, he didn't want to break his word. And this, this was the moment of crisis. This was the big one. He should have never put himself in this situation to begin with. But after however long, however many months, maybe even years of, of uh, ignoring John the Baptist, now he's in this moment. And here he is. And either he could listen to his conscience that grieved him over the possibility of executing John. It saddened him greatly. 
He was exceedingly sorry. He could go back on his word and spare John's life, but that would tank his political career. It would make him look so foolish and make him look weak in front of his guests. And he so desperately wanted their approval. You see, in this moment then, Herod, his whole worldview is colliding now with God's truth. His worldview was one of power and influence. That was the foundation that he had built his whole life upon. And now that worldview was demanding something from him. It was demanding innocent blood by his hands. And would he do it? Would he give in? Would he ignore his conscience and and, uh, shed the innocent blood of John the Baptist? Well, we know what happened. We know that he gave in. He valued his wealth, he valued his status and his power more than the truth of God. And here's the tragedy of the ignored conscience. Here's the tragedy that happens. We've already mentioned it. He should have listened to John from the beginning, and this opportunity never would have happened. But now at this last moment, this heightened moment, this last chance, in the end, he ignored his conscience for the last time. He called the executioner and and had John beheaded. Here's the lesson for us. Here's the lesson for us from this story. If you are feeling your conscience pulling you in a certain direction, you must act on it. That's the lesson for us. If you're feeling that in your heart, you must make a decision. If there is some uh, indwelling sin in your life that's nagging at you that you know is wrong, you, you have to make a decision. You have to kill it. We cannot let the window of opportunity ever pass us by because we, we don't know if that's going to be the last opportunity or not. If you're feeling compelled in your soul to, to do something, if you're pe- feeling compelled to, to confess something, to go and to talk to some person, to, to let go of bitterness, to offer forgiveness, to, to get help for some problem in your life, the most dangerous thing you could do is ignore that prompting and to ignore your conscience. You know, there's no such thing as just a little sin. It's, it's so hard for us uh, at times. To, we, we have our own um, pet sins. We, we, we let ourselves uh, covet um, and think that it's, it's, it's no big deal to let that root of bitterness enter in. But, but it'll grow. It'll take root and it'll grow. And it'll be that much harder to, to root out, but it's, uh, to, to cut it out at the very beginning. There's no such thing as, as little sin. Now, that is a lie of the devil. Absolutely. Don't ever listen to him. You know, when Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, how did, how did Jesus do battle with, with the devil? What he didn't do is he, he didn't dialogue with him. There, there was no back and forth. The devil spoke his temptation and Jesus, he rebuked him and he quoted scripture at him. There was no conversation. And do we think that we're stronger than Jesus? 
Sometimes we think that we could start a conversation with the devil and we could have a, a back and forth and think that we could come out victorious in that conversation. But he's, he's the father of lies. Jesus didn't entertain anything that he said. He didn't, he didn't think, and well, maybe, yeah, maybe I, I could just use a little snack. Maybe I could take some of these stones and turn them to bread. No. But he quoted scripture at him. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He's the father of lies. Satan is the father of lies. He will twist our words. He'll twist our intentions. He can twist God's own word against us. We can't dialogue with him. We can't, we can't ignore our consciences. We can't let those moments go by. But Godfrey, uh, he, he's right when he says that if we consistently violate conscience, then we will begin to deafen and deaden it and it will not testify as it ought within us. You know, it's like any other muscle. We can let it atrophy. We can ignore it so much that when those moments come, it's, it's quiet. We can't hear it. We're not receptive to it. So how do we respond in those moments of crisis? Well, we know we, we must flee to Christ. We must flee from sin and flee to Christ and to His Word. But that's easier said than done, especially in the moment. So how do, we, how do we do that? Where can we find strength to respond well? This is the last thing I want to consider. How can we be ready to respond rightly in these moments of crisis? There's a few things. The first thing we have to do is we have to saturate our consciences in the Word of God and in prayer. Word and prayer. Maybe I sound like a broken record, <laughs> but word and prayer, the ordinary means. We talk about these all the time. These are the, the means that God has given us, the tools that he has given us to live, to live our Christian lives. Word and prayer. I hope you see just how central these things are to our lives as, as Christians. A, a conscience, if our consciences are untethered from the word of God, then they're going to be calibrated by the world. If they're not tied to God's word, then we're going to let the world decide for us what's good and what's proper and what's right. So we cannot let that happen. We must stay uh, consistent in the word and in prayer. Uh, we have to model this uh, for, uh, for one another. Uh, parents must model this for their children to not value the things that the world values but to look to, to God's Word, to store God's Word in our hearts, to internalize His Word. It goes without saying, but it's impossible for us uh, to know how to live for Christ if we don't know how Christ wants us to live. It makes perfect sense. But it's impossible for us to do that unless we are, we're in the Word, unless we know what He wants for us, unless we know what pleases Him. So we must know our Bibles, be developing those spiritual disciplines of, of devotion and prayer. That is so key. That's the first thing. Another thing, how can we have the power to respond rightly? How can we be able to respond in those moments? We're able to do that in the second place when we have our foundations and our priorities right. Herod wasn't able to respond rightly because his life was built 
on the foundation of the world. His worldview was centered around politics and around power. Those were the most important things to him. That's what life was all about. So, of course, when he was faced with a crossroads moment, when, he, when his worldview and God's word came in conflict, of course, he would go with this choice to protect the things that he valued the most. He chose the world. He chose politics. He chose his, his uh, fraudulent power over God's word. But contrast that with John the Baptist. You know, John, what was his worldview? His worldview was centered on Christ. You know, from the very beginning of his ministry, John is preaching Christ. And he's saying, there's one coming after me who is mightier than I. He'll proclaim to his disciples in in John's gospel, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was John's worldview. He must increase, I must decrease. Everything in John's worldview was centered around Christ. And because that was the case, he was okay with being thrown in prison. If that's what it took for him to remain faithful to God's word and faithful to God's truth in order for him to call out what was unlawful, what was sinful, in order to proclaim Christ and his message. So, we must not be like Herod. That's a a simple message. We cannot uh, let ourselves ignore our conscience like he did, but recognize that it's never too late to do the right thing. You know, it's, it's never too late. Herod, he, he should have said no to that great sin of beheading John. And you know what? Yes, it would have cost him everything. It would have cost him his career. It would have cost him all of his influence, his family. It would have cost him his wife. It would have cost him all his power. But he would have saved his soul. So our worldview, we have to have that eternal perspective. Our worldview must be centered on Christ. What benefit is it for us to gain the whole world if it forfeits and costs us our very soul? That's the kind of worldview that John had. That was the foundation that John the Baptist had. That's the foundation that we must have as well. That will help us in these moments of crisis. Third, final thing, and we'll close with this. How can we be sure to respond well? How can we be empowered to respond well in these moments? The third thing, we must remember and look to Christ and to see how he responded in his moments of crisis. How did Christ respond when he was tempted? How did Jesus respond in his great moment of anguish in the garden? Do you remember that scene in the garden of Gethsemane? Jesus, knowing that he was about to be betrayed and arrested and tortured and crucified, he prays. He says, Father, all things are possible for you, so remove this cup from me, the cup of the Father's wrath. All things are possible for you, God, so please remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. He was about to suffer the Father's wrath on the cross as the payment for the sins of His people. And He went to the cross, and He went gladly. And if He has done that for you, 
then you have all the strength that you need to face those moments of crisis. If Christ has died for you, then you have all the reason you need to live for him. See, this is the grace of the gospel. If we're not keeping Christ at the center, if we're not keeping our focus on Christ and what the gospel teaches, then it's easy for us, for our consciences to become calibrated to the world and for us to ignore them completely. But keeping our focus on the gospel, keeping our focus on Christ, will not only keep our consciences captive to God's word, but it will empower us in those moments to respond rightly and to obey Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that your word would hold us captive. We pray that your spirit would guide us always. And we pray that we would strive to keep our consciences tender uh, to the spiritual things of your kingdom. If our hearts have grown cold to you, we, we pray that you would rejuvenate them. If, if the flame of our hearts has grown weak, we pray that you would fan that flame into greater passion and desire to serve you. And most of all, we thank you uh, that you have saved us. Because you followed the will of your Father perfectly and always, you did everything perfect in order to accomplish our salvation. And it is finished, so help us then to live a life that is holy and pleasing to you, a life of gratitude, a life of joy. We thank you, and we give you praise, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.